Dan Sickles is one of the most fascinating characters of the 19th century. You have to be to earn the nickname Devil Dan. Listeners of this podcast will remember Sickles from our Gettysburg episode, where historian and co-host of The Battle of Gettysburg podcast, James Hessler, told us about Sickles' role on day two of that battle. Four years before Gettysburg, however, Sickles was in another fight for his life, as he was tried for the murder of Philip Barton Key, his wife's lover, who Sickles shot on February 27, 1859, in front of the White House. In this episode of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, New York Times bestselling author Chris DeRose talked about the shooting of Philip Barton Key and the subsequent murder trial Dan Sickles. His latest book, Star-Spangled Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial that Changed America, covers those events in a flowing narrative that reads as much like a modern crime drama as it does a work of historic nonfiction. Our interview picks up shortly after I asked if Chris's background as an attorney or any of his previous books led him to writing about the Sickles affair. DeRose stumbled on the case when writing a previous book, The President's War, Six American Presidents and the War that Divided Them. Now all of a sudden, these former presidents, all they cared about was something called the Sickles Affair. And I said, huh, what, what, what could possibly be so important to take their eyes off the ball and focus on during this time of great national trouble? And I looked into it and I said, okay, that's a pretty good story. Um, and it, it just always kind of fascinated me. And, uh, you know, I decided I wanted to, to, to write a book about the Sickles trial and the effect it had on the country. So can you start sort of the story by telling us who Dan Sickles was up until 1859, 1859 being the big year, we'll get into exactly what happened, but who was Dan Sickles, a pretty uh, educated uh, congressman at that time? Can you tell us a little bit about his background? Sure. So he's a very high-profile member of Congress from New York. He's a former state legislator. Uh, when James Buchanan was sent to the United Kingdom as ambassador by President Pierce, uh, Dan Sickles went along with him. And so now Buchanan's president of the United States. Sickles is kind of his protege. Sickles is representing New York in Congress. Um, and, you know, he's a very prominent member, very well versed uh, in foreign affairs, very widely respected as uh, a speaker and debater in the House of Representatives. And uh, he is, um, he's really, he comes from the Tammany Hall sort of uh, machine, doesn't he, in the city? Um, he's he's well-liked, but he's also sort of, uh, people maybe see him a little sort of as a, uh, not corrupt is the right word, but somebody who knows how to rise up uh, quickly. I, don't know if that's I the think right way that's to put fair. It. And, you know, I, I mean, Tammany, Tammany Hall was the road to success in politics. Uh, New York City at this time, and so uh, he was he was definitely part of Tammany. So he's any ambitious young man would have gone and, and you know beat a path for Tammany Hall if they were looking to run for office. Um, so can you tell us? Well, one of the more interesting parts of his life, and certainly very interesting part of your book, is the time that he spends with Fanny White. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Who Fanny White was and sure. his time with her. <laughs> so. Fanny White was a notorious New York City madam uh, who ran a house of ill fame. Um, and Daniel Sickles was a patron of Fanny White's establishment. And somehow the two of them uh, maybe fell in love, certainly started a relationship. 
And um, he, he certainly wasn't ashamed of her or what, what she had done for a living. And, you know, took her up to Albany while he was in the state legislature uh, and scandalized uh, the other legislators in Albany. Um, and so they, they were together really until Daniel Sickles falls in love uh, with his future wife, uh, Teresa Bagioli. Now that you mention uh, Teresa um, and, and, and Fanny White, just to go back to her real quick, she, she wasn't sort of, in, in my mind, when you think of a 19th century madam or prostitute, you get sort of a, a sad picture. She, she actually was quite wealthy. She did quite well for herself. Oh, she was probably the richest woman in New York. Right, right. Um, she, she, she owned the building. Uh, she had long since given up um, you know, prostitution, and she had a lot of, lot of girls working for her. And so even though Sickles at this point is a very well-paid attorney, uh, Fanny Wong was really the breadwinner in that relationship. Right, right. And, and if I recall correctly, that doesn't end well, but uh, the, the relationship it, it, between Fanny and Sickles. It doesn't. Fanny White finds out that Sickles is in love with someone else, and um, she she wants to teach him a lesson. And so, you know, she finds where he's he's in the Carlton Hotel in New York City. Um, of course, women are not allowed in bars at this time, so she's dressed as a man. She walks into the hotel bar at the Carlton and attacks Dan Sickles with a bullwhip. So I guess that's one way to end things. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so, in case your listeners think they've had some bad breakups, think about yeah. you know, spare thought for poor Dan Sickles, who got bullwhipped by uh, the leading madam of New York City. Right, right. Um, so Sickles does eventually meet and fall in love with uh, Teresa uh, Bagioli. Is that how you say the last name? It's Italian last name. Yeah, exactly. Um, they, they meet and they, they fall in love. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Teresa has a very interesting background. Um, tell us about her. I mean, educated, beautiful. Yeah. So, uh, they first encounter one another when Sickles is put up in the home of Lorenzo de Ponte. And so this would have been something that would have been, um, a common relationship that you'd have in preparation for going to university. You know, you would, um, live with a, a tutor, um, and maybe board with them and they would get you ready for college. And so Sickles boards with Lorenzo de Ponte, and de Ponte is an absolutely fascinating figure in his own right. Certainly could be a book written about him. Uh, he was uh, a former Venetian priest who was defrocked and who somehow found his way to the court of Emperor Joseph in Vienna and ended up being the libertist for Mozart. And so, um, you know, someone who's very famous for writing the words to operas such as um, and, and so this is the house that Sickles boards in in preparation for entering what was then known as the University of New York, now known as New York University. And so DePonte lives there with his children and their children, and Teresa is Lorenzo DePonte's granddaughter. Right, okay. And so um, they uh, there's initially some um, – this the, her family doesn't want her to marry him. Uh, there's an age difference, but they eventually quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, they, he's thirty something, and she's fifteen, sixteen, like sixteen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so, but they 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 do get married, I think, secretly at first, and then they have a a, a larger um, uh, wedding uh, shortly thereafter. Yes, yeah, so Daniel Sickles, who's not one 
not one uh, for small gestures. He he gets married first, and the mayor of New York City marries them in secret. <laughs> and then uh, the bishop for New York marries them in a church wedding subsequent to that. So um, they're married, and uh, eventually, I think in the, the 1856, Sickles is elected to Congress. Again, all these great connections that he's made. Uh, with his time uh, as a lawyer and a Tammany Hall uh, operator in New York City. He's elected to Congress as a Democrat, and he goes to D.C., and uh, Teresa joins him, and they both really sort of love the uh, atmosphere of D.C. Um, can you talk what about, because uh, this was so interesting, especially some of the, this is the way you describe D.C. We talked a little bit about it in a previous podcast with Rachel Sheldon, who talked a lot about, D.C. in the 1850s, but it was a party town. You know, I mean, if you like to go out every night, you know, that was a place to be. Exactly right. If you were part of the right social circles, D.C. would have been a really fun city. And Daniel and uh, Teresa uh, decide they want to be on the top of the social circuit. And that means, uh, you know, the, the, the way to guarantee access to the best parties is to put them on yourself. Uh, and so the Sickles leases a home um, across from the White House in Lafayette Square. It's actually the childhood home of um, future Confederate General Ewell. Um, his father had actually had the house built when he had a medical practice in the Capitol. And so Sickles re- re- rents this grand home on Lafayette Square, the most prestigious uh, address in the city, and they throw these grand parties, and it's not uncommon to see the president as a guest there. And it was a place where you could uh, mix and mingle with uh, senators, congressmen, journalists, prominent business people, ambassadors, um, and so it was, you know they're they're on top of the they're on top of the world in terms of um, the social circuit. And, you know, always getting invited to the best parties and, and putting on the best parties themselves. So it actually sounds like quite a lot of fun. Right, right. Uh, and you also, I mean, you write, you know, obviously you have all these parties going on and all these uh, well-to-do people or connected people with politics going to these parties. But a point that you make, which is, I think, really important, is uh, the culture of Washington was democratic, it was Southern, and it was unapologetically pro-slavery. Uh, and all true. This sort of brings us sort of perfectly into uh, Philip Barton Key, who obviously is the other half of this book, or at least the victim of uh, uh, this story. Um, can you tell us about him a little bit and sort of how he fit into that scene? I mean, really interesting character. Yeah. So he's uh, the son of Francis Scott Key, author of our national anthem. And constantly living in his father's shadow. Um, you know, he tried to move out to the frontier at one point in Iowa. And then his father died, leaving debts and younger children. And so Barton Key had to come back to D.C. But he's appointed by, uh, first by President Polk uh, to the job of U.S. Attorney. And, you know, Chief Federal Prosecutor of Washington. And then at the time, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. is quite large. And at the time, it was, it was really just Barton Key. So he was responsible for prosecuting all the crimes that happened in Washington, D.C., first in the Pope presidency. And then after, uh, after Pierce um, becomes president, Key will get his job back. But he's considered the handsomest man in Washington. He is a uh, member of American 
American royalty, the Key family, one of the oldest and most prominent families uh, in America. And um, you know, he's on the, the must-invite list for, for any major social event in Washington. Now, would it be fair to say that he probably had his position, as a lot of people did, not because of his ability, but because he was, like you said, sort of American royalty? He, he wasn't a great lawyer. Yeah, there are definitely, uh, I think, you know, he's probably one of those people who was very talented, uh, but had never had to work too hard in his life. Right, right. And so I think he wasn't very thorough, wasn't very diligent, because um, you'll, you'll see him lose major cases and fail to win major cases. Um, but then you see, like, early in his career, there's a case he tries in the Court of Appeals over a pair of pants. <laughs> and he, you know, he's, he's successful in that, you know, when he was, maybe younger, a little hungrier, trying to prove himself. But I think he was really mostly uh, a fun-loving guy who was interested in the partying and maybe not so much in his duties as U.S. attorney. Right, right. So um, he and Teresa begin an affair. And this, again, you know, the great thing about your book is it's page by page. It is just compelling. It reads exactly like a story uh, everything in it is is real history um they begin an affair that you know in some in some ways they sort of go to lengths to this sort of this intricate sort of signal system that they have um but on the other hand everybody in washington seems to know about the affair uh except for dan sickles uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how long the affair was and uh, how they carried it out sure so it goes on for almost a year uh starts pretty early during the Sickles' time in washington dan sickles is often detained in the house of representatives on business he trusts barton key to escort his wife uh, to various parties and events uh, never suspecting that anything's amiss between the two of them. You have um, the first person who becomes aware of their affair is uh, a gentleman, young clerk in the Interior Department, who is stalking Teresa. And um, he starts talking about it. He has a lot to drink one night at the bar at Willard's Hotel, and he starts talking about what he has seen Teresa Sickles do with Barton Key, you know, riding off writing off out of his town and checking into a hotel together. Sickles finds out about it, summons this young man to his house, and the young man backs down. He says, you know, I, I never said this. I don't know anything about this. And so Sickles never thinks anything else of it. Um, and let's see. So then you have, um, you know, you have a situation that really calls for discretion between Barton Key and Teresa, and they don't seem to be capable of exercising any. You know, just a couple weeks after Beekman, uh, the, the man who had seen them and talked about them carrying on a fair, just, just a couple weeks after he had been summoned to Sickles' house, they're seen together at a big party, dancing and leaving the party together. Um, but they do, uh, ultimately, Barton Key rents a house in the neighborhood north of the White House. If you're familiar with D.C., it's the old, near where the old Washington Post building was. And the house is used exclusively for them to carry on their affair, hopefully without getting caught. Right, right. Um, but, of course, um, they, they are caught, or at least people know. Um, 
and uh, Sickles receives this just astonishing letter uh, from somebody, um, I think it's still anonymous to this day, uh, who actually sent the letter, but basically says that he has the same use of your wife that you do. Um, and yes. Sickles, again, is sort of first reluctant to believe it, um, and he sort of la- launches an investigation. Of course, he knows the right people to go to who could sort of, <laughs> sort of do this kind of seedy investigation. <laughs> but, yeah, well, Sickles, Sickles has the henchmen that he uses right. to carry out the investigation. And you said sort of the perfect, uh, I mean, just the perfect guy that, you, you, I mean, you couldn't dream up a guy better than uh, who Sickles had uh um, right. to, to Woldridge. Sort of, Woldridge, that's right. Um, so, and eventually, and I, you know, uh, we're going to skip parts because this book is so great, and, and I want people to 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 read the whole thing. Um, but he he finds out, um, and he confronts Teresa, and what really is uh, an extremely emotional. I mean, as you would imagine, but extremely emotional uh, sort of interaction that they have on a Saturday night when he confronts her. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and the confession, which sort of ends up being a huge part, comes back later in the trial? Yeah, so he confronts his wife with proof of the affair and actually has her write out uh, a confession, which is such a lawyerly thing to do. Um, she writes out a confession in her own hand, and he's going to spend the rest of the weekend in his house trying to figure out what he, where he goes now. You know, you can imagine he gets this letter, um, reads it very early on Friday morning, Saturday night. Um, he's, he's, um, convinced, you know, been able to prove that his wife's having an affair. So he's just had his whole world upended and, you know, seemingly perfect life. And now he finds out that it's basically all illusory and he's going to spend the rest of the weekend in his house trying to figure out what to do. Uh, until Sunday morning, of course, uh, when he sees Barton Key in Lafayette Square across from his house signaling to his wife. <laughs> and and uh, just to backtrack just a second and then get to the uh, incident, the shooting, um, the worst part of this was that everybody knew or that Sickles, I mean, he kept saying that. How am I going to be, you know, how can we live on the same planet together, Barton Key and I? Uh, when everybody knows that he's had an affair with my wife. I mean, that was a very big deal. I mean, it is it is now and it was then um, that he had a very tough time dealing with that. Yeah, and the honor culture of the time, too. Um, there was, you know, his friends that advised him, send Teresa back to New York. It's almost time for congressional recess. File for divorce. Send her to Europe. You know, there are ways to paper over this. And, and Sickles is like, no, I'm the last person to know what happened. Everyone in D.C. already knew. And, you know, um, Barton Key had been warned by people who cared about him that he was, he was a little too public with this affair. And he didn't listen to anybody. So what happened on that Sabbath morning, uh, the Sunday? It's Sunday morning, as you said. Sickles sees uh, Barton Key signal to his wife. He had just confronted his wife the night before. Uh, what happens? I mean, again, a very vivid uh, picture that's painted in your book. Yeah. Uh, so he arms himself with at least three guns uh, <laughs> under a trench coat on an unseasonably warm February day. And he 
crosses Lafayette Square, which I've done at a really brisk pace. It's about two minutes from Sickles' house to where he encountered Key and starts shooting at him. And he shoots him. He shoots. He shoots at him several times. Uh, he hits him twice, I think. Yeah, probably three times. Okay. So you've got, um, and, and you know, the, when you when you read like the autopsy or the findings of the autopsy at trial, looks like he may have been. But he shoots at him quite a few times. Um, one wound is that near the groin area, and which is probably not accidental. Sickles was renowned as a, 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 a pistol shooter. Um, so one shot near the groin area, and there's one uh, shot to the torso. Um, that's really the fate of the fatal shot uh, on the ground. And he just but shoots at him quite a few times. And he try he 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 I, tries to shoot at him while he's on on the ground uh, at at some point. Yeah, but he, he I think Sickles he, attempted a coup de grace. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know I mean if he had brought two of them three guns with him, uh, he probably would have survived this thing. I mean Sickles had really awful luck with his guns jamming and misfiring during the attack. And and Key was unarmed, but uh, it's, it's so interesting, unarmed, but he had opera glasses in his in his jacket <laughs> that he might have thought was a gun. I mean, he most times he would have been armed. He just happened not to be armed that day. Yeah, it was a subject of a great deal of speculation. Uh, so Key's private member club, where he actually ended up dying, the, the clubhouse on the east side of Lafayette Square, which your listeners will know as William Stewart's house during the civil war. Um, so he's at the, the clubhouse, private members club. Uh, one of his friends there, Albert McGaffey is telling him, you know, you're just getting a little too public with this affair. I think you need to dial it back. And, uh, you know, keep pats his shirt. And he says, I'm prepared for any eventuality. Pats the gun in his jacket. And so it would have been very, customary for um, someone like Key to be armed at all times in Washington, D.C. And, you know, he, he had said as much to people. He's ready to, he's ready to shoot if, if Sickles has a problem with this. And so it was a matter of a great deal of speculation why Key happened to be unarmed that day. Uh, prevailing thought is that he'd actually just changed clothes right. and forgot to transfer his gun into his new outfit. And if he did have a gun, I mean, it might have been completely different because it yeah, because that fatal shot didn't come. Yeah, I mean, I assume he probably would have killed Sickles. It yeah. takes Sickles a very long time and a great many shots to actually put a stop to Key. Um, and so, you know, if Key had been armed, he, he, he would, may well have worked out uh, differently. So there, there are so many interesting things about what happens after this, and we'll get to a few of them. But again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm imploring everybody listening to buy this book because it's really good and we're we're not getting to everything i mean it's just impossible but somehow james buchanan figures into this again you see you know sickles and buchanan are very close um that morning somebody witnessed the the uh the altercation of the shooting and ran to buchanan can you tell us quickly about that sure well we we have here is an 1859 example of the President of the United States committing obstruction of justice in a capital murder case. <laughs> so James Buchanan has a young aide who works in the White House, um, maybe 18, 19 years old, and he's going to church that morning, and he sees Sickles kill Key. He actually helps carry Key's body into the clubhouse and then runs back into the White House covered in blood, finds the president, tells him what he saw, well, as far as Buchanan knows, 
this guy could be the only witness. And so Buchanan tells this young boy, says, no, you can be held in jail as a material witness to the crime. And so you'd better get out of town. And um, so he gives the young man some money, hunts around for a souvenir to give him so he can remember his time in the White House, ends up giving him a shaving razor that he'd acquired in the UK, and sends him back to North Carolina, thus getting a material witness to the crime out of the Capitol before he can be questioned. Um, And so he gets out of Washington. Meanwhile, uh, uh, Sickles turns himself in. Again, another great story that we're, I mean, he walked to the attorney general's house and they allow him to go back home. Uh, They allow him to talk to Teresa. They allow him to have a drink. Um, Although, you know, I don't even know if they took his weapons off of him. I mean, uh, and he's eventually... Uh, placed in a very unpleasant jail in Washington, D.C., but he ends up assembling uh, some very big-name lawyers, one in in particular who who sort of gets his, I mean, uh, legendary status uh, during the Civil War. But can you talk a little bit about that legal dream team that that he assembled? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, the legal dream team looks quite deliberate, but it's actually haphazard. So you have... The news of Sickles' arrest, it gets blasted out through Washington. Pretty soon it's on the telegraph wires to New York. And so Sickles' friends and family start hiring lawyers for his defense without talking to him or talking to each other. So within, you know, by the next day's news, he already has three or four lawyers working for him, including, as you alluded to, Edwin Stanton, uh, who is at that time just a very prominent lawyer in Washington, D.C., and so he's got Stanton, he's got James Brady, who's probably the best lawyer in the United States, certainly like the best lawyer in New York City. Uh, John Graham, who's another Tammany man and New York City lawyer, they come down to D.C. to defend Sickles. We've got a couple local attorneys who are more familiar with D.C. juries, uh, the lawyers from Virginia and D.C. And so you have this incredible legal dream team that comes together really the first legal dream team in a criminal defense case. And they seem to work very well together, uh, despite all the egos in the room. And, and, you know, any person could plausibly make the case for why they should be the lead on this or that aspect of the trial. They all work very well together uh, to try to get Sickles acquitted. And, of course, I guess uh, not really uh, not really important in a legal sense, um, but James Meager Flum um, who joins the legal team in order to appeal. You know, he's an Irish nationalist in order to appeal to Irish members of the jury. Right, right. Um, so what what is their strategy gonna going to be? I mean, I read it, Chris, and, and, and uh, tell me if I'm wrong here. I mean, uh, to me, it looked like they were throwing a little bit of the kitchen sink, um, that uh, obvious they were going to, they were going to play up a self-defense if self-defense sort of w- w- was something that was going to fly. They were going. They were willing to sort of make this argument about natural law and a man has a right to shoot his wife's lover. Um, and of course, they were floating around the temporary insanity thing. I mean, I don't. I, I maybe you know better than me because you're a lawyer. But is that uh, what was what was your take on that? That's exactly right. It's- really three principal defenses uh really this is a self-defense case and you can't prove it wasn't so you know all the witness you have all these witnesses testifying to what they saw 
and you know the defense team says, hey, you really don't know who started it. There was a gun that was found at the scene that did not match one of the balls that was taken out of Key's body. They say, hey, maybe that was Key's gun. You just don't know. Um, but if you're not content with self-defense, really the truth is that a man who kills his wife's lover actually not a criminal. Um, and so you should acquit him on that basis. And third, if you don't find any of those defenses availing, he was temporarily insane when he put on a trench coat on himself with three guns and walked two minutes to fire multiple shots at the U.S. attorney. Right, right. Um, so uh, in temporary insanity, that defense had has a history. I mean, you, you write a, a little bit about it. It has a history going back to the Romans, I believe. But uh, it's sort of starting to pick up a little bit of momentum in England around this time and is sort of making its way over to the United States. But it's still very new. I mean, it's it's not something that has been uh, seen in, in trials quite a bit up until, well, really uh, that time. And I think that this might be the first case where it where it worked. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there in a second. Can you talk a little bit about, this was so fascinating, the, um, uh, the jury selection, uh, something that uh, maybe I was, uh, you know, naive about. Um, obviously, it's only men that serve on the jury, but there was another big stipulation that, uh, that, uh, that was enforced about property, right, or about the property. Yeah, it's interesting. So Washington, D.C., adopted Maryland's code as a placeholder until the district Congress could write its own laws for the district. Uh, but of course, anytime Congress is writing laws for the district, you're going to run into slavery as an issue. And so Maryland's law just persisted in D.C. <laughs> through this time. And Maryland juries had been a property requirement for serving and it had never really been rigidly enforced. But um, in the Sickles case, the prosecution has this sense that, you know, the kind of people who hang out in bars and working class people, they're going to say good for Sickles, who cares about the law. And really, if their, their thought is if we can get a higher class of people on the jury, they're going to understand that you just can't go around killing people because you feel like it or because you feel like they've done something wrong to you. So it's going to take several days to see the jury mostly because of how much publicity the case has got and right. how strong people feel about it one way or the other. Well, and that's, that's the, the huge point that you make in this book, and I think that's where the, the part of your subtitle, uh, The Trial That Changed America, comes from. I mean, this changed the press in completely. Um, so can you talk about how this case was covered by the press? I mean, you, you said you, to, to start off this podcast that you, you initially encountered this case by, you know, uh, reading the, the president's reactions. But of course, they're reading this every day in the newspapers. Uh, can you talk about the coverage oh, yeah. and then how this all changed press going forward? Absolutely. So this is the birth of the modern scandal and the birth of breaking news. So if you read a newspaper today, if you read the news on the Internet, if you turn on the television and watch the news, everything you see in the way it's covered dates back to this particular event in human history and this trial. So the Sickles case is by far the most covered event that ever happened in history up to that point. And you had the Telegraph that had scaled across the country 
usually it was very expensive to transmit news. And so normally you'd look at the telegraphic news section of a newspaper and you would just see little blurbs. And then once the bulk of the story reached you through the mail, then you'd read the rest of it. But this, there was such a huge demand for this story. Readers couldn't get enough of it. You read verbatim transcripts in the newspaper. Even the most sensational trial up to that point might only get you a few paragraphs in one or two days' newspapers. This is multiple times a day, morning edition, evening edition, turn-of-the-screw coverage of the Sickles case all throughout the country. And so you had a couple other factors that, that sort of made this ripe. I've talked about the scathing of the telegraph, but you also had a new kind of newspaper. You had the penny presses. So starting with the New York Sun, you had a new kind of newspaper that's covering human interest. You know, before this, you had the shipping news. You had, you know, business, intelligence, news that covered uh, the price of commodities and which ships had come and gone and where were they heading. And you had uh, newspapers that were funded by political parties. But you never had newspapers that were just geared at subscribers or geared at people buying copies to read interesting stories. And so you get these penny presses. You also had technological breakthroughs in printing presses. So you could print more columns for less money, and you could print closer to the time at which you had to publish. So you're getting as close to breaking news as humanly possible for 1859. And so you've got this environment that's just perfect for something like the Sickles case, where you have a prominent killer of uh, a, a handsome, famous victim and a beautiful woman at the center of it all, followed by a sensational trial with America's best lawyers. I mean, it's just the perfect storm. Uh, absolutely. And the, the, the coverage does a lot to sway public opinion, really, in Sickles' favor. I mean, a lot of uh, men in particular are sympathetic to Sickles, and uh, I think that really comes across in the second half of your book, um, that, uh, that a lot of men, even some, some jurors, end up saying that uh, I'm pretty sure I might have done the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was really hard to go anywhere in the country without finding people who had a strong opinion about this. Uh, either in favor of Sickles, in favor of Key, or you know maybe their sympathies were with Teresa, who, after all, um, is simultaneously denied any agency for being able to conduct the affair. You know they talk about Key seducing her. Yeah, right, right. And and right, like she's denied any agency for this. But at the same, this woman who spoke five languages and you know was considered yeah. a, a brilliant member of Queen Victoria's court when her husband served in the delegation but surely can't make an adult decision to carry on an affair. But simultaneously, she's blamed. She gets all the blame for it. Yeah. So she's the one who gets cast out of society. She's the one who loses her, all her friends, loses her role, loses her position in Washington society. Um, so, so, you know, people had strong feelings about all of these players. Who were and, and Sickles ends up receiving the most criticism when he writes this very eloquent letter basically explaining why he has taken his wife back, uh, which yeah, is just it really is the most unpopular thing he does in all of this, is forgiving his wife. And, and the other thing, Chris, that was so... He wrote this letter and published it in the newspaper. I mean, this, I mean, really, I mean, it's great for you as the historian that can go back and just grab that letter. But, I mean, really, just uh, just 
compelling, compelling stuff. I mean, this is sort of the perfect story. Uh, and I'm really glad somebody wrote it. <laughs> I mean, because you. you don't even have to be, you know, a history person. Again, you could be somebody who just wants an entertaining read. I mean, that's what this is. Um, but it's really brilliant history at the same time. Yeah, I try to make this work for everybody. If you like true crime, if you like trials, if you're interested in knowing where this current crazy media environment got its start, if you're interested in journalism, if you're interested in substantive American history, this hopefully works for, for all of you. Well, it, 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 it absolutely is. And Chris, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, again, the book is Star Spangled Sca Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial That Changed America. Uh, Chris has several other books. Uh, I believe you have a website too, Chris. ChrisTheRoseBooks.com. Check out uh, this That's book it. and his other books, uh, especially uh, right in time for the Christmas holiday, uh, or just go out and buy it today for yourself. Uh, but Chris, thank you so much. A pleasure. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things civil war. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org.